0: So when they ask me, why do you play bluegrass? What does it have to do with your culture, with your musical education? I what? What culture, what education? What are you talking about? I mean, it's bluegrass and old, even old time music, some of it are as universal as jazz is or Eastern European music.
1: hey what's up everybody i have made it back safely from my trip to nashville last week those of you who follow my travels know that i was down there visiting some friends having uh, a lot of much needed fun there and there's a lot for, of that to be had down in nashville got to do some playing like i said see, seeing friends seeing a lot of good music Uh, meeting some of you. I ran into some listeners so if that was you it was really nice to meet you and I I hope to make it back there really soon and for an experience that was so rejuvenating in one way boy was it exhausting in another. There's a lot of stuff to do and perhaps most importantly I was able to get some really great interviews that I'm going to be releasing over the coming uh, weeks and months and really excited to bring those to you But first I need to bring you this interview today with another fascinating guest who I really enjoyed speaking with. First of all, I just wanna tell you, if you do like this podcast, please don't forget to do the subscribe, follow, all all that business, whatever the platform you use has you do. Uh, Rate it if that's available, that all really helps. And if you really like the podcast, share it around on social media, share the links, Follow me on social media. I'm on most of the big ones the you know the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. You can find me there to to uh, you know follow what I'm up to, follow what the podcast is up to. But if you really really like the podcast, what I need you to do is go to patreoncom podcast. That's the way to actually directly support the show and help help keep all this running. Make sure all these episodes can keep coming out and you'll be helping to feed a hungry family of five in the Detroit area in the process. So so, something to feel good about all the way around. Today's super cool, extra special, all-organic, free-range Patreon supporter of the show is a gentleman named Panos Koutalos. And Panos, I sure hope I got your name close to being pronounced correctly. But uh, Panos joined because he wanted a a connection to other banjo players. He lives in Greece where there aren't, there just aren't too many banjo players apparently. And uh, so he enjoys the aspect of community and he's been signing on to some of those VIP lounges that we've been having. And Panos, it's been great seeing you there, my friend. And I hope to keep doing that. So thank you so much for your support. And I hope to see you at future VIP lounges. For the rest of you who haven't heard of these, these are very important picker lounges. And for the Patreon supporters that sign up, you get to join me and a lot of your fellow listeners once a month on a video chat where we play some banjos, talk about banjos, discuss music in general, get to know each other. It's a ton of fun. And the next one is actually uh, next week, June 29th, 2021 at 9 p.m. Eastern so stay tuned. Anyone who signs up on Patreon for the the correct level before that will get an invite to that VIP lounge. You know, I'm just realizing, I, I, I just mentioned that Panos, the Patreon supporter, is from Greece, and today's episode features an Italian banjo player. And I even made some hummus today, so there's just a Mediterranean vibe happening. I promise that was just a coincidence. I didn't plan it like that, but... Uh, I think I like it. This is this is very cool. We're going to we're going to run with this. Uh, in the meantime, anybody who has comments, questions, concerns, hummus recipe tips, uh, you know where to find me. Contact uh Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast at gmail.com for all of that stuff and I hope to hear from you.
2: Birds kiss the shore. It was there I spent that summer in a cabin on a lonely hill. Of september came i tried to hold today's featured guest is
1: silvio ferretti the banjo player longtime banjo player for the italian bluegrass group red wine and silvio is probably equally if not even more known these days as the builder of scorpion banjo bridges and scorpion instruments scorpion bridges are some of the best out there. Anytime you see one of these threads, whether it's on Banjo Hangout or Facebook, asking, hey, what's what's the best banjo bridge out there? It doesn't take more than one or two comments before somebody's going to say, you need a scorpion banjo bridge. And I couldn't agree more. Silvio is a really talented guy. A great banjo player and has some fascinating things to say about what goes into bridge building and what he learned directly from his old friend Snuffy Smith. So I think you're really going to like his stories about growing up in Italy, finding the banjo and all about his bridges and much, much more. So here it is, Silvio Ferretti.
0: born in Genova, Italy, in the great bluegrass state of Italy on of October. Of course, <laughs> October 25th, 1952. I can't right now after that, uh, I can't remember what Flat Earth or Bill Monroe were recording at the time, but it was a good time for bluegrass music. And I discovered the banjo around 60 something.
3: Uh, and,
0: uh, unluckily it was the, a tenor banjo playing mm. in uh, Washington Square in an Italian rendition of the tune. Terrible, really terrible. But shortly afterwards uh, around 65 the uh, New Christian Minstrels were a big group in, during the folk craze. They came to Italy and they played the festival a music, a popular music festival in San Remo. The festival is still going, and I don't know what they were doing there because there was nothing in, in that festival, even remotely suggesting folk music or something. But uh-huh. the new Christian minstrels came. they were their name was shortened into the minstrels. and they had, one or two banjo players at the time, and the main banjo player, Larry Ramos, he came to Italy to play at the festival with this baby here. That was his banjo. That was his banjo. The neck is new, oh, no. and the, the part has been molested and refinished too many
1: times, but that was his banjo. Oh, that's amazing. It is. So what's, it is. How, so, is it skipping too far ahead to ask you how you came to own it? Uh, no, it's... Well, we are far ahead, but we're banjo
0: players. So we're yeah. all speeding.
1: <laughs> Very advanced.
0: <laughs> uh, I came to own it in 2007, and uh, seven, eight. Okay. Because uh, the guy who had it offered it to me a few years before and it was too expensive for me uh, after a couple of years it wasn't anymore because my father had died and left me some money and in so I, I contacted him again and in talking about this banjo he mentioned the fact that it was the the banjo that the new christian Ministers banjo player had so I said, geez, it's the first
1: banjo I ever saw in my life. And you didn't even know that uh, know before that. when I you had were trying no to no idea. No idea. Oh, how amazing. Yeah. So I,
0: I talked to friends that I have who are a lot more fans of the New Christian Ministers than I am. And this guy in particular, he sent me uh, all the, the photos of the covers of the uh, of the new of the LPs, and they all had this gold-plated uh, TB75. The the Larry Ramos had it gold-plated because they were on TV a lot, and the nickel plating gave a glare that was terrible for the cameras. Okay. So the cameraman asked him to do something about it, and he had it gold and it's an original flathead the rim is not the original one because the original one delaminated so this guy that I bought it from uh, had Robin Smith find the right rim for it which happened to be a 1932 TB3 rim actually which sounds very good so I don't know the original uh, FON number
1: uh-huh. Uh And I don't care,
0: <laughs> because I, I love this banjo to death. So.
1: Yeah, and it has such a special story for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm really uh, sentimental about that. So if they played on TV a lot, were, are you able... Is there stuff on YouTube where you can see your banjo being played? Did it make it yes, onto the there, internet?
0: There used to be a video. I'm not sure it's there anymore, because it's a, a national TV video here and they're not very accurate in keeping uh, the recordings that they do and did. Uh, If you if you Google for, I mean if you go on YouTube for Bella Ciao which is a popular uh, partisan song here uh, and New Christian Minstrels you will find the video that they recorded around the days they were at the Festival of Sanremo in 1965, and that banjo is on it.
1: Oh, that's so cool to have that. Yeah. So going going back to when you attended this festival, uh, what was it about the sound of the banjo that caught your ear and made you interested in uh, uh, doing that yourself? I actually never
0: attended the festival. Uh, I watched it on TV because I was ah. uh, 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the sound of the band just has always been very special to me. It, it's wild, and yet it's not. It's also elegant in some way. It's very, uh, I mean, it's, it's cutting, it's piercing, but it's not obnoxious to me, at least. Right. right. Never talk to my wife or my ex-girlfriend
1: or whatever. They're all wrong. We, we know it.
0: <laughs> we know that exactly but it's it's not obnoxious it's it's wild and full and round and elegant at the same time and it's it says usa it says folk music it speaks bluegrass but it's also it's got it's also got a more ancient sound of course uh, matter of fact the first thing that i learned to play on the banjo was pete Seeger's style and Claw Hammer, that kind of stuff. I mean, from 1965, fast forward a few years and I I fall in love with Pete Seeger. His records, they were all reprinted here in Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I had to see him and he came to Italy to play in Torino in 1976. Not too long after the first encounter. I, now, I did go to Torino this time because I was already 23
1: or something. You're old enough, yeah. I'm uh, old
0: enough, yeah. I went there by train on Easter's Eve, which caused my, my father not to talk to me for a couple of weeks, but I didn't care. I uh, went there and I was not able to talk to him. The artists were not easily available. But I yeah. was able to talk to Toshi, his wife, Oh yeah, yeah. And she was very kind, and she, she gave me their postal address. I wrote to Pete Sager, and he replied in a couple of weeks.
3: Oh, that's great. And he
0: did. He enclosed uh, a leaf uh, in, in the letter, which I learned uh, to know that it was a very special touch. It meant that it meant that he he was my friend. And oh, he so uh, told me where to look for a good banjo. No, he did include a, a copy of Mugwumps, and mm-hmm. told me to get in touch with Mike Holmes and everything. So that that was the way I I bought my first
1: good banjo, real really good banjo, which was an open back. And so when did you? Of course, now you are. I imagine you still do some open back playing, but you're mostly known as a bluegrass player. So how did you get more into that, and did you have others around you who were available to play with, and how did you get started playing in, in groups and bands?
0: Uh, yeah, that's basically the story of Red Wine, because I never played with anybody. I met Beppe Gambetta. Mm-hmm. At, uh, it was a New Year's Eve party, 1974, so it was before I went to see Pete Seeger. And in yeah. the beginning it was just a guitar duo, two guitars and two voices, or a voice and a half. And then I I met Pete Seeger, or almost. And I bought this first banjo. So we, we started to to include some old time material in our precious few concerts. Yeah. <laughs> then we found a bass player and we found a terrible fiddle player who was a great guy. So we are more <laughs> friends than we are musicians. Always uh-huh. has been this way. Uh, so uh, the uh, official year of birth for Red Wine is 1978. And uh, uh, yeah, as you said in the beginning, we, we only played old timeish stuff. And I, I wanted to play Bluegrass, though, because in the meantime, <laughs> flashback... Uh, 1967, I would say, a colleague of, uh, of my uncle, who was doctor, a colleague of his had studied in the U.S. for a few years, and when he came back, he brought a present to my uncle, and that present happened to be a four LPs box set from Vanguard Records with everybody and his brother in the folk... Oh. And bluegrass field in it, from Pete Seeger, The Weavers, Odetta, Rambling Jack Elliott, Flat and Scruggs, Doc Watson, uh-huh. everybody. And yeah, that was a great, great way to fall in love with the sound of the banjo, uh, even more. And so we we tried to to play those things. Yeah, and it was all well- fresh and new for most of the audiences that we played it,
1: too. It sounds like that stuff was fairly difficult to come by where you were growing Terribly up, different. recordings and... Terribly good okay.
0: Records, not to mention the Pete Seeger banjo book, which I found totally by chance in a bookstore. But I, I think there were maybe three or four copies in all of Italy. And... Yeah. So all of us who were musically active in those years we all had the same difficulties we didn't know anybody in in our area who was able to learn anything yeah of course we tried to learn from records but as you know well learning scrunch style from a record is prohibited (laughs) i mean today these guys (laughs) have everything easy it's a piece of cake you go on youtube Boom, you have a hundred courses in in anything you want to do, even throat singing from Mongolia.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, you can slow everything down. (laughs) Right. But
0: at the time, needless to say, uh, it was terrible.
1: So, who became your main influences when you were starting to play bluegrass? It sounds like Earl Scruggs was, of course. That's to be expected.
0: Mostly thanks to the Will the Circle Be Unbroken, triple C uh, LP. But also John McEwen, who was on the circle, but somehow he didn't, I mean, I didn't like his playing as much, nearly half as much as, uh, as Earl's playing, of course. And then I, I found some Bill Monroe LPs with the various players that were on them. So my biggest influence actually was Earl until uh, I would say the early eighties when I was able, one, to subscribe to Bench Newsletter, uh-huh. two, get all the back copies, <laughs> all backish, every oh, single Oh wow. One. And three, there were more records available in Italy and I learned about County Sales, who was also a great source, of course. Yeah. Uh, So the second main influence to me was was J.D. Crowe. Needless Mm -hmm. to say. I discovered Sonny only later on.
1: Okay. Uh, And it was mostly through getting information like banjo newsletter trying to hear about as many of the players as you could sure yeah cool yeah talk about what i know maybe it's hard to have this kind of perspective but being from italy you have a different culture and a musical uh vibe around your country talk about what influence you think all that has had i'm thinking particularly you probably have more classical music Around in your background, but maybe i'm maybe I'm way off so talk about what influence you think that might have on you
0: yeah that's a very very interesting subject because Italy is considered to be a, a great place for arts of all, of all kinds seen from outside of it right in fact, uh, we have a lot less basic musical education, like in school or church, mm. than you guys have in the US mm. or anybody in Germany, the Czech Republic, in those places, they don't, I mean, at school, elementary school, they don't, they don't learn to play on a little keyboard or something. They, they learn a damn cello, for Pete's sake. They, they study flute. Serious stuff. And Italy is not that way. Music is
1: huh.
0: a little in on the side of every activity. Uh, we have a lot of classical music, but it's, it's usually old people stuff, or used to be. Right. Uh, so when I was not old yet, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my Italian musical influences were really close to to zero. Uh, I was influenced by American pop music, British pop music. Of course, I I had the Beatles since their day one. Mm -hmm. And the Stones, I I liked a lot better than the Beatles. So when I was like 16 or 18, I I wanted to be Robert Plant
1: with with his voice. That didn't work out though? Didn't happen. <laughs> oh man. Well, well, we'll just consider you the Robert Plant and Jimmy Page of the banjo. That that'll be fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Awesome. So, so uh, uh, also on the uh, on, on the folk music front, Italy is not one entity. It's a it's an archipelago. It's a myriad different entities musical entities you have the south which is uh, three four five different things you have the greek influences in in the eastern part you have the um, african influences in the southern part and then you go up and you find uh, i mean up to my area uh, or the area that my family is originally from which is the lower pigment. And there you have music that is French music, by all means, as mm. far as melodies and
1: harmonic structures and everything. You weren't necessarily exposed to a lot of that, though, when when not you were much, growing up? Not much. I started being exposed to
0: a lot of folk, of Italian folk music when I started working the circuit of the then Communist Party. They had... They organized a lot of concerts and festivals around, the, around all of Italy. And uh, the early versions of Red Wine played a lot of them. I'm speaking of the uh, late 70s, early 90s. Uh, yeah. We played a lot of them and uh, in uh, many uh, an occasion, we met bands, that, I mean groups that were playing uh, Italian folk music. And that's yeah. that's where I really realized that there was a rich culture in Italian folk music. Ah, huh. yeah, interesting. Unbeknownst to me for the first 20 plus years of my life. Yeah.
1: You had to be a, a tourist in your own, exactly. In your own country. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what it takes. So when they ask me,
0: uh, why do you play bluegrass? What does it have to do with your culture, with your musical education? I say, what? What culture? What education? What are you talking about? I mean, it's bluegrass and old, even old-time music. Some of it are as universal as jazz is, Mm or Eastern European music. (laughs) Mozart has have to do with Italy, nothing, Mm -hmm. right? But he's a. Uh, the fu-
1: fundament uh,
0: of, of our musical culture in Europe and yeah. everywhere.
1: So given that most of your influences were uh, Western, you know, Amer- American and other European music and, and you're playing a an American music form, when was the first experience you had of either playing in the States or playing for Americans and how... Mm. How how did how did that go? I can imagine it might be a little nerve wracking.
0: <laughs> Talk about being nerve wracking. Well, the, actually, the first time we played for an American audience was at a uh, at an army base that the U.S. Army has in the close to Vicenza, which is a little north of Venice. Okay, uh, we played that army base and. People ignored us. Uh, I don't know what they expected, if anything, but we played to a a crowd of people who were, I mean, they were talking, yelling, drinking and everything, not paying any attention to us. So that was nerve-wracking. But next step was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it happened for me and Martino, the mandolin player of Red Wine. It happened in 1986, uh, thanks to a couple of friends uh, who were at the core of a band, uh, a fairly international band called Freewheeling. This band was was really great, really great. A four-piece like us, they had a tour organized for the summer of 1986 when all of a sudden the banjo player and the mandolin player decided to quit. So they called us. We were friends. Uh-huh. And they called us and asked if, if, if we were available for that. And I said,
1: hell yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah, so I worked like a slave for a couple of three months in order to have as many extra hours as to be able to take... A two-months-and-a-half vacation.
3: Oh, right. Yes. Yeah.
0: So we played, we played a couple of gigs in Germany before. They were, I mean, those two guys were living in Germany at the time. And then we moved to the U.S. And we only played like six, six gigs there. But uh, they were all great gigs. We played the Strawberry Festival. Oh, in, in California, Sierra, in yeah. California, which was incredible, we played Bill Stanley's barbecue and bluegrass in Nashville, which at the time was the place to be in North Carolina. Ha! Huh. We played the Station Inn, of course, to a great crowd of ten, maybe twelve, including JT. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. And we played the Kentucky Fried Chicken Festival in Louisville and that was there some good gigs <laughs> great gigs <laughs> and i managed i managed to blow the last set at the kentucky fried chicken because you're familiar with the galt house yeah can you name the the weakest part of it the part that puts everybody
1: in, in jeopardy some way Where- i guess i'm not sure what you mean the bar must be the bar no the elevators. <laughs> that was my next guest, actually. Okay, the elevators. Yeah. I r- tried
0: to, to dash, to rush to the stage for a second set, and I didn't uh-huh. find a, a, an elevator for about 15 minutes. So oh, yeah. by the time I got to the backstage, I was already half an hour late or
1: something. Oh, no.
0: Yes, and we were sandwiched between Doc Watson and Tony Rice talk about a bad place yeah to be uh, but i mean it was great
1: the, speaking of bepe gambetta that's yeah. my main memory of him is that i had to i had to follow him when he was playing with dan crary at a at a folk alliance set mm-hmm. and i've never been so disheartened walking out on stage having to go on right after those guys <laughs> they were they were amazing and then i i had to get up there and do what I was doing, which was, wasn't very impressive compared to that.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, those guys are incredible.
1: These are places you were performing, they're places with audience who, who know bluegrass and what it's supposed to sound like. What did, they, what did they think of you?
0: I can tell that they liked us. It was not red wine, but it was a type of band that was very much in the red wine frame of mind, so to speak. We didn't mm-hmm. do much traditional bluegrass, if any, at all. Uh, we were doing covers and arrangements of different stuff, like Misery Train by the uh, New Prairie League. Okay. We were doing Merle Haggard. We were doing Steve Warner stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. we were trying to do something non-bluegrass in a bluegrass style, which is pretty much exactly what red wine has been trying to do. Red wine had a uh, a higher dose of traditional bluegrass and that was not very well received, as you can expect. Because, I mean, it's pretty obvious that you have to be from the place where the music was born. I mean, even California, it's still the USA. Yeah, I'm
1: I'm not from the place either.
0: (laughs) Okay, I understand that. And it, it, it's funny to me, uh, listening to people say, ah, they are not from
1: the, uh, from the South, and, and it shows. What? Well, they can hear the accent when you sing or something like that. But
0: yeah. we were well-received were anyway. Uh, I was interviewed by Roger Semenov for Frats mm-hmm. magazine. He yeah. was in love with the banjo that I had at the time, which was, happened to be a 1963 bow tie which I loved, but later on I found out that I didn't like it that much. But Roger <laughs> loved it and interviewed me for uh, Frets, and next thing you know, Fretz, boom, <laughs> stopped publication. <laughs> you, you killed it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I was guilty of doing that. <laughs> and we were contacted by Lance Leroy, he was uh, the manager of the Cardinals at the time. And okay. Not Lester because he had died a couple of decades before. Country gentleman, I guess. And he offered us some help should we want, it, want to come back to the States again. Uh, red wine
1: this time though, right?
0: This, uh, Yeah, this time would've, it would have been red wine. So fast forward to ninety five. I'm not going to uh, explain too much why almost ten years went by, but it involved the the sickness and eventually the death of our bass player. So it was really hard time for us. But in 1995, we applied for uh, the IBM showcase, and mm-hmm. we were taken. So I I wrote a nice letter to Lance. The last, do you remember me? Da, 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 da. And he offered to to put together a tour for us to go yeah. along with the to pay for some of the expenses. So we went ahead and bought the plane ticket and everything. And about twenty days before the day we were supposed to leave, I had heard nothing from Lance Leroy. So I called him on the phone. About About gigs, you mean? About gigs, exactly. Yeah. And I asked him, what are we supposed to do as far as gigs? And he said, oh, yeah, Uh, I have a gig for you at the station inn. I said, yeah, but the station pays the door. Sure, yeah. Where do you have friends? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I have friends in New York. Oh, Okay. You could go there and work the Eagle Saloon, I think is the name, or what's the name of the place, and then work your way down to Owensboro. And I asked him, what do you mean work our way down? Don't you know, like, venues? Oh, yeah, I I can try. (laughs) So (laughs) I wanted to cry. I called Dan Hayes who at the time was the ex- executive director of IBMA. And, of course, he was very, very nice. And he understood my drama. And he put us in contact with Mike Drudge. And Mike was able to find enough gigs to pay at least for the airfare uh, in, in a matter of 10 days. Wow. He was great right. and it they were not very well paid but what what do you want i mean
1: yeah how long first first time there yeah
0: first time there exactly completely unknown yeah. so uh no wonder that we're still great friends with mike and he's still our agent uh and this time we were received very well instead we were we played traditional festivals like poppy mountain Or,
1: well, the station in, of course. That's so great. I've noticed a trend on a lot of your albums. You will have a a fair number of pop songs, you know, maybe to, to give listeners something familiar to hear. But you also make sure to represent Italian music, too, here and there.
2: Stars make you drool just like Pastor Fazo, That's a more. When you dance down the street with a cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, signore. Scuse me, but you see, back in old Napoli, that's a more. Buonasera signorina, buonasera, com'è bello stare a Napoli e sognare, mentre in cielo sembra dire buonasera, la vecchia luna che sul Mediterraneo appare. Ogni giorno ci incontriamo camminando, dove par che la montagna scende in mar.
0: Italy is very different from the US. So, mostly people don't know what to expect when they go to a bluegrass concert. And you gotta teach them what bluegrass is by approaching it step by step. Yeah. Uh, we, we may start from a song that had the banjo in its original version. You start with a little bit far from the core of the, of the music and you get there. Yeah. And as far as the, Italians, the Italian stuff, it had been a, a constant in, in all our concerts. We start by doing old time stuff, bluegrass stuff anything arrangement of of popular things and after a while somebody comes up to the stage and says i really like your music you're really great now can you play something nice something (laughs) good and by that they mean something in italian okay something they know yeah something they know exactly yeah so we decided to include at least one song in Italian or medley of songs in in every CD that we've done. That's well, it. I'm
1: I'm a little surprised to hear you say that you you do the Italian stuff for your Italian audience. I was thinking about it more as a way for you to smuggle in some some Italian music for the Americans who would buy it. Sure. I think I think that's the coolest part about it. It's, yeah, but those songs
0: that, uh, that are very popular. In the U.S. as well as in Italy, they are not serious songs per se. They mm-hmm. have sort of a, a humorish thing,
1: yeah, like the Louis sometime. Prima stuff. Yeah, exactly. Is, exactly. Yeah, just sort of light it's stuff yeah.
0: that they, uh, the the Americans can can be familiar with, even if if they don't understand the words, because mm-hmm. they've heard it before, or like singing that Samora, which is. We just got nothing Italian in it, except three or four words.
1: One word, yeah. Yeah, Uh, But it's fun for us,
0: and it's fun for the audience, so why not?
1: Let's shift to talking about your, your lutherie and your bridges. How did that come to be something that you were interested in? And now, of course, I think just as many people know you as the bridge maker as know you as a banjo player.
0: Hope so. Actually, I've been wondering myself about that. What brought me to, to building bridges? I'm building bridges. That was a great song. <laughs> um,
1: it inspired you, apparently.
0: <laughs> yeah. Fact is, I was uh, a good friend of Snuffy Smith. I first met him in 1982. My first trip to the U.S. without a band. I met him there. Uh, He put me up at his place, treated me like a royalty. And we became friends. And he came to Italy a couple of three months afterwards. We traveled Italy together. We went to Cremona. Uh, He wanted to see the Stradivarium Museum, which was closed Uh. as... Very common in Italy.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, he, he was a
0: f- really funny guy. He knew everything about building bridges. Needless to say, he was the guy who invented the boutique bridges, by yeah. the means. But he did that because he knew how a proper bridge has to be built. And he studied traditional luthery. Bridge making for uh, boat instruments, the way the wood must be cut, uh, the way they, the grain must be oriented, and everything. His purpose was to build bridges that were both very efficient from a uh, an energy standpoint, I mean, energy transfer standpoint, Yeah. and sounding good, of course because the two yeah. things don't necessarily go along. Huh. You may build a bridge that screams and blows the, the doors open and sounds like shit, of course. Yeah. So he studied a lot about that, and of course he was always in search of the best maple for it. He came to Italy because Italy was on its way to Yugoslavia, to the former Yugoslavia Republic. That's where Bosnia is, and Croatia, and all the areas where the maple trees have grown forever. The maple trees that were cut by the Venetian Republic to build everything for which maple was needed, including musical instruments.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: We also have maple trees, but the best maple always came from the former yugoslavia area and that's where snuffy always got his his wood for, from and of course he also got a lot of great wood from northern michigan mm-hmm. uh, which is another great area for maple
1: yeah it sure is
0: after a, i can't remember how many years snuffy quit production he moved to north carolina from arkansas where he lived at at the time we uh, i saw him time and again and his bridges were not were not available anymore i had found another great bridge which was made by david wadsworth Uh, mcpeake carried those bridges and they were great but david wadsworth who was a uh, a pastor at the time decided to go church full time and didn't build bridges anymore so I I had to do something and I yeah. at the time I was starting to work in this Lutheran, repairing guitars and I decided to build my own bridges benefiting from the experience that my boss had in in building bridges for Uh, gambas and violins and everything, and benefiting from the great maple that I could get from this area.
1: Hey everyone, Keith here. I was just chilling in my backyard studio again and thought I need to tell everyone about our great, great sponsors. The first is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is a streaming site to take courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, uke, And through those courses, you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the best instructors in all of Root's music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction. Here are some of the courses. Beginning Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans. You know him. He also teaches Bluegrass Banjo. You can learn Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden. Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molesky. The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, or Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, each of these courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the bonus feature of these is that just by being a listener of Picky Fingers, you can get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout, and you'll get to sample any of these for absolutely free. Picky Fingers is also brought to you in part by Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. We all know that it's so much cooler to support small independent businesses and it really helps out when that independent business also happens to be the most knowledgeable and trusted source around for new used and vintage stringed instruments. And I'm talking of course about Elderly Instruments. They've been family owned and operated since 1972 and you can go to elderly.com to check out their wide selection of all stringed instruments. We're talking all the banjos and banjo accessories and learning products that you could ever want. But if you happen to have a hankering for let's say electric guitar, acoustic guitar, fiddles, ukes, mandolins, they have all that too. So once again just go to elderly.com or give them a call at 517 517- 372 7880 to talk to one of their knowledgeable sales representatives. You know, I keep bragging about Michigan, but it's hard not to. If you drive from where a lot of the Motown records were recorded and you drive toward Kalamazoo, which is where all those pre war Gibson banjos were made, along the way you get to Battle Creek, which is the home of GHS Strings, another sponsor of the show. You know, even those pre war Gibson banjos don't sound like much without a good set of strings on them and GHS are some of the best and you know that they're some of the best because they're the ones chosen by players such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crowe, Sonny Osborne, and me. I've been a user of their PF145 banjo set for quite a few years and if you need strings for your guitar, mandolin, or any of those other instruments, they're going to have that too. So check out ghsstrings.com for their full selection. So most of the listeners are are banjo players of course and a lot of them are very interested in this. So as much as you can what what were the important things that you learned from either Snuffy or from this um violin luthier that you that you studied with? What what are the important aspects like why is Yugoslavian maple better and just break break down all the yeah. things that are important characteristics for people to know matter
0: about. of fact for my badgers I prefer uh, northern USA maple Canadian maple Michigan maple and everything because it has a sound that I'm used to to hearing from I mean nobody in the old days used anything else but Grover bridges and Grover has always been USA, they did, for sure, they did not import, ma- uh, import maple from Yugoslavia. They used whatever right. ma- maple they had available. And also from Grover, uh, Snuffy taught me what not to learn. The fact is that a properly built bridge, let's take one. I hope you can see the medalla rays those
1: yeah, I I, on, I, on. I can see it. Unfortunately, the listeners won't. But, they want, but you're talking yeah. about, yeah. <laughs> the
0: <laughs> this is nice. This is this is American maple. Uh, the, the fundamental thing is learning to put the medallion ray on the back, on the on the face of the bridge. And we're we are talking about snuffy style bridges, which mm-hmm. it happens to be the same style of both instruments' bridges. They have one face, the one towards the thepius, which is has to be perpendicular or almost perpendicular to the head. There is right. no slant in a snuffish, snuffish bridge. There's a 19-degree angle. So this face has to show the medullary race. And if this happens and you look at the at the bridge sideways, you see the fibers, the grain. You also see the belar rays. they are the those very thin, dark lines uh, that are vertical or a slight slant. And you also see yep. perpendicular to Sam, to them. Uh, you see the, the the grain. Snuffy wanted to have both. The medullary rays perpendicular to the head, and the the grain parallel to the head, which happens maybe once every hundred bridges.
1: Oh, that doesn't oh, okay. But
0: it's it's a goal. In this way, you have the the most efficiency uh, in a bridge, volume wise, uh, response wise, and everything. Of course, you find. Bridges that I built differently, like the ones that I prefer myself, which are the traditional Grover style with the both sides, I mean, symmetrical. What uh, Sani calls straight bridges or normal bridges.
1: <laughs> Almost like a an A shape. Exactly. To them, exactly. yeah. Okay.
0: In that case, uh, I start from a blank that does have the this face perpendicular, and then I sand it, so as to get that forward slant, so so to say. Right. But uh, the basics of of that blank are are still correct because the the medulla rays are perpendicular to the head. No matter what okay. you do with the rest of the bridge. Afterwards. Also very important the fibers have to run exactly parallel to the top if you have grain run out here especially over the arches that's that's a call for destruction because a break follows the grain of course if the grain is okay. continuous from one side to the opposite side that's strength right there if they you had grain run out that is going to break
1: i hear a lot of people talk about counting the grains along the side of the bridges is there any importance to that
0: not to me i don't think uh, there's any importance in that uh, i've found even uh, well I'm, I'm not talking about my bridge right now i'm talking about Snuffy's and Wadsworth and everything Mm -hmm. snuffy had some amazing bridges amazing sounding bridges that had like three grains in all three lines in all and some better bridges that had like 12 15 so it it depends on the density of the wood uh, of the of the weight of course Uh, even though snuffy never weighed the, the bridges that he made but he was very, very conscious with the shape, the uh, opening of the of the arches. Lower arches have a, a definite way of behaving uh, and higher arches, a different one. Uh, the response varies and the tone varies also. So y- you've got to know your wood very well in order to... To get the most out of it for every single piece, and that was why Grover made maybe one good bridge every twenty or thirty bridges, because uh-huh. of course they they didn't have time or wood to waste. Uh-huh. What the Grover guys did was glue glue the ebony on it,
1: okay, <laughs> and then just diced like it this. up and
0: then. <laughs> Cut like this. Uh-huh. Of course. They were good for 90 degrees. Yeah,
1: like slicing a slicing a loaf so, of bread or something.
0: Exactly. So yeah. maybe this first bridge had the gray right, but it come to this, forty-five degrees all the way.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, but does it didn't matter to them, they were just making no, as many as course. they could out of out and of the wood If, if had, you
0: see yeah. the the way they were they were made. All those nice curves and everything on the outside, remember? Those were done with a, a router, exactly the same way the furniture was made. They were, they were router bits that were used for cabinet making, uh, not for bridge making. And it made sense to them. Problem was, maybe one bridge out of 20 was good, and the rest was crap
1: so that not that affects not only you were saying the the stability is affected but you think the the sound is big time yeah, affected sure. as well
0: definitely yeah. the sound the response the volume i mean every component of the sound is affected and stability it, and the ability to uh resist to sagging
1: uh, another big trend in bridges and also rims and other things lately are the uh, submerged maple Mm -hmm. uh, wood that people use. Have you experimented with that? And if so, do you notice a difference? And and what difference?
0: Good question. I have noticed a difference, but heaven knows what difference. (laughs) 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 The first, uh, I mean, uh, one of my friends, a really good friend, was Tony Pass. Because yep. he was Italian and he came from a long line of mafiosi in his family. Tony Pass is Italian? Well, or he's his, just his real family background? His name was Antonio Passafiume. And I never his family knew that. was from Sicily. Huh. So every time we met at IBM or elsewhere, uh, he, he we always talked about his family. His uncle, huh. which was a, <laughs> a mob member. And, and everything. We talked about Italian food, and he always wanted me to... I mean, he asked me once, and I made it a, a nice habit of bringing him the Toscano cigars, which he loved. So I may oh, have contributed to his lung cancer. Uh, I don't want to think about it. But, yeah, he was a, a great guy, an incredible guy. And, yeah. And he had a lot of, of, of sunken... Submerged wood, of course, because he was he kind used, of the
1: original guy who, who seemed to make that popular, yeah, from Wonder my memory,
0: Man. yeah, sure, along with Scott Zimmerman, maybe,
1: right? Who, uh, they were always at the same booth, if I remember, yeah,
0: and they shared the booth with uh Turtle Turtle Hill Dave, Man, yeah, yeah, Dave Shankman. So he gave me a lot of uh, a lot of submerged maple for free. I mean, I still have a ton of it. Then I uh-huh. bought some of it from Jack Menzies, Jeff Menzies, mm-hmm. yeah, up in Canada, and so I've used a lot of it, especially in the past. and one guy who was particularly hot about about submerged maple at the time was was del Perry, and I remember a time we we tried maybe twenty bridges that I had made. Uh, all made of, of a sunken maple, and not one of them had a sound that was similar to his next-door neighbor. I mean, they were all wow. different. The common thread, according to Dale, was that they seemed to dry out the sound a little bit. I mean, get rid yeah. of some unwanted overtones. Uh, at least that's the way he felt about I don't like working with it because just because it's it, it's totally non-predictable. I mean I, I make a bridge and I have no idea of how it's going to sound. I know that it will oh, be good. loud but I'm not so sure it will sound good.
1: So you're just wasting potentially wasting a lot of time. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh,
0: the latest order that Benjamin Clark placed there were 14 or 15 maple bridges so I'm not I'm not slamming them by any means. <laughs> they pay the bills. Right. Yeah. And apparently so, they make some people happy at least.
1: So it sounds like you, you appreciate predictability, of course. What what would you say the other trends are in the other types of wood that you offer? What are what are the tonal outcomes that you've experienced?
0: It's very, very hard for me to explain. Because, like your your question, the rel- about the relative effect of top wood versus base versus base wood, ha! Huh, it depends on the base wood, totally. Yeah, uh, it depends on the density of the base wood. Ebony is or can be the key for having good base response, nice lows, nice tight lows, like Tony Rice would have said. I mean, lows that don't, that are never muddy, lows that are easily perceptible, readable, as yeah. good lows. But if you use too much ebony, if you put a, a, a top on any kind of wood, a top that is very thick and heavy, then you have the mute effect. Uh, the best mutes are made of ebony for a reason.
3: So right. there's they're heavy. a fine yeah. <laughs> line.
0: Exactly. There's a very fine line between the right between the right quantity, uh, the right weight, right thickness of the ebony top, and the performance of the of the whole bridge. Especially in the Lowe's department, but not, not only uh-huh. then. This said, every bridge is different. And I haven't to... To, to switch to the next question about having tried experimented with other wood types than, than maple and ebony. Uh, I have, and I have used a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, walnut, for example. Mm-hmm. I had a beautiful old piece of walnut, Italian walnut, not American black walnut. And it sounded good, really great. But then again, it sounded good in cert- part of it, and the opposite end sounded terrible of the same piece of wood. Wow,
1: that's incredible.
0: Tom McKinney, who was my guru for so many years, he for some time he used to love uh, Walnut because it gave him... A uh, hard and banging sound, like like you described it, and I, I'm not <laughs> sure I want my bread just to be to, to sound hard and banging. I mean, a little hard is okay, but hard and banging, hmm.
1: Yeah, depends on the player, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but but even among the the different types of maple that you're using, like mm. I know that you are using. I want to say Bosnian maple mm-hmm. you might have and and I imagine your supply is always changing, but are are there any it sounds like the only consistent thing is inconsistency as far as sometimes <laughs> it, 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 it works out
0: You got okay, it. but I mean uh,
1: but like if someone emails you and says, I want to sound exactly like Bela Fleck or j d. Crow or good luck, uh, Ralph Stanley <laughs> or something, yeah. Do you have things that you're able to to recommend to them as being more likely to yeah to work for them?
0: Yeah, but I believe anybody who has played the banjo and worked on on banjos a little bit uh, can predict that without being bridge expert. I mean, you know that I mean, one thing that that I ask uh, people uh, when when they want a bridge from me is what banjo do you have? How is it set up? Head tension. Yeah. What do you think the tailpiece is for? How do you screw with it? Literally. Yeah. And and all this. And what is your? Who is your favorite banjo player? And what sound you're after? That's my set of questions. And. When somebody says, "I want to sound like J.D. Crow, and I have an arched-up Ramirez, uh, other than saying, "Good luck,
1: I don't know what to the, do. The, the bridge isn't going yeah, to: the, the bridge, bridge isn't going to solve it.: yeah.
0: No the bridge is not going to change much, but I will send him a, a fairly thick bridge, heavy bridge, so as to absorb some of the uh, ultra-highs frequencies.
1: From the archtop. From the
0: archtop. I mean, this is kind of basic, I would say.
1: Yeah. Uh, Another thing that maybe this is a recent development, are all of your bridges radiused on the feet
0: now? They have always been.
1: They've always been, I guess.
0: To a certain degree.
1: I didn't realize that.
0: Not Maybe not in the first years, but after a while, I realized that even on my, my own banjos and I'm, Obsessive about checking head tension and never let it go loose, even on my banjos with my bridges. uh, After a while, they started to sag, so that was the way the 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 time when I decided to put a little bit of a radius in it to go along with the with the head flexion.
1: And and you've had positive experience with that. You think that yeah, that is a good addition. I, I think it's good.
0: The the ideal thing would be knowing exactly the deflection of the head for every right. banjo that has one of my bridges on, because if <laughs> you talk to Mark Horowitz, like I did uh, last year at at Jovell, you you cannot mention the Deering Smile bridge to Mark Horowitz. He's gonna kill you. He thinks. <laughs> The worst possible things about the concept of radius, radius feet. Maybe because the the radius that Deering uses is pretty extreme. Yeah. I guess that's why. Or maybe because Mark runs the head really tight. I have no idea. But it's it's something. I mean, the, the radius feet is something that you have to deal with very carefully. Yeah. If I know the, uh, the, the badge of that, the bridge is going on, I'm so much happier. Like, yeah. I know that Jens Kruger keeps the head at G tops, not, right. not tighter than G. And then he uses kind of heavy strings. So the bridges for him have more of a radius than for Anybody else who has the the head at A and uses lights,
3: it'll be less. Yeah,
0: it's me. I mean, it's pretty pretty easy to to understand that.
1: People on the internet are always talking about all sorts of things. Are there any other misconceptions about banjo bridges that you feel like you want to correct that yeah. you hear people? So talk far, about? we
0: have covered the, the grain. The line count, right? Right. Well, the radius, yeah. Oh, yeah. The equivalence, thin bridge equals sharp, bright sound. Mm -hmm. Thick bridge, low bassy sound. No, it's not like that. Like Richard uh, Dodson said, a very thick and heavy bridge makes for a Thuddy sound. Not a yep. bassy, full, round sound. J- just thuddy. Right. Because it...
1: Yeah. Absorbs everything.
0: It, yeah. it absorbs everything. To me, it's pretty uh, pretty understandable. But, I mean, those urban legends are hard to die.
3: Right. and I, ba- I Banjos have that, a lot of them. Yeah, a
0: lot of them. I found that... Uh, thin top is great even because it now how thin is thin i don't know uh it depends on the bridge of course but uh, the bridge this is one rule that i have a bridge has to be elastic to have some Hmm. elasticity to it
1: in which way like when you when you're Twisting it, yeah, like, twisting like I just saw you doing and like
0: this. Yeah. Vertical. Okay. Uh, and the the weight must be distributed kind of evenly. Uh, a bridge that is top heavy is bound to to sound dull. It's bound okay. not to be lively and not to be able to transfer the lows very well.
1: I I just thought of another. Um, banjo lore thing with bridges, how much faith do you put in the method that people test them by dropping them and listen to the bridges as they hit the table? Do, do you find that to be reliable in any way for how a bridge is going to sound on a banjo?
0: Oh, Snuffy used to do that. But it was just to show me that good maple has a good sound when dropped on a, on a hard surface. It was not a scientific test to, to, right. to tell which bridge is going to sound better than the other or something. If it works right. for, for some people, more power to them.
1: <laughs> I'd rather wait yeah, them. Vi- <laughs> yep. <laughs> anything to say about compensation or anything like that? Uh, sure. Some just do need it.
0: Others don't, and the reasons for it are totally non-understandable for me. I, I can't tell why a certain banjo that never plays with good intonation and another one which has the same the same fret spacing and everything is never intuned. Some strings are never intuned, but. Uh, it's a fact so i've i've made the usual third string compensation on a lot of bridges snuffy thought that um, the sound of the third string and of the whole banjo benefits a lot just from the small amount of, of ebony that you take away because the, he really? said the, the third that's what he said <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I agree, but or that I have good enough fears to understand that. Uh, but he thought that the third string, being the only one that had that has wood all the way down to the head, yeah. taking a little bit of wood out of it may help.
1: It's well, that's okay. a concept from that's a concept of. Violin bridges, right? Is that none of the strings will, would have yeah. a direct line exactly. toward the top? Exactly.
0: And quite a few banjo uh-huh. bridges as well. Uh, my idea is, is that everybody is free to experiment and, again, more power to anybody who finds a way to, to put to good use the concepts that are behind uh, a century-old design time-honored design also i've i've built uh, a few bridges fully compensated bridges like the neckville enterprise only i think that tom neckville has a cnc machine to do that and i only have (laughs) files and fingers (laughs) right and a lot of patience uh i've made a couple of Bridges compensated that way for Tony Trishka, and I'm making a couple for Gabe Hirschfeld right now. Yeah. Gabe is oh, cool. my hero. But it takes a lifetime a lifetime in a day to me to make one of them, so I'm not crazy about about making them. Plus sure. they all they're all too heavy for my taste.
1: I guess we'll move on from the bridges. Is there anything I forgot to ask you about? About the bridges that you wanted to make sure no, people no. know about, or uh, I mean, it's, it's, yes, it's sort of a dark art for most of us. It's
0: sort of a sour note. <laughs> um, oh no. I'm having more and more problems with my hearing. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. running a router at 25,000 rounds per minute may have a part uh Even with earplugs and earmuffs. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm trying to um, to to get the help of a couple of guys. One is a luthier who studied in Milano, and he's possibly going to uh, to cut the wood according to my specs, and I'm very anal about that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh cut the, the maple and the and the ebony and provide the blanks. And there's another friend of mine who lives in Vicenza and he has a CNC machine and he's trying to to find a way to cut the bridges on a CNC machine so that they are exactly like I would make them on the yeah. damn router. And I would do the uh the final stuff, which is a lot of work anyway, uh, like right height and everything. I mean, polishing and slotting and branding and everything. This way I could, I could uh, spare my ears of the insult on the router. And oh, yeah. Possibly have more years of building. Because I, I want to build guitars. I want to build banjos. I want to do stuff that that is not noise eighty percent of the time. so I, I love building banjos, but I love building guitars more
1: than banjos and how many how many guitars have you built?
0: Very, very few,
1: like a dozen uh, yeah. or so but hopefully more soon hopefully more. And
0: you asked me how many banjos I've built. And I don't know. I, I know that I've built 22 complete banjos. Oh, cool. But I've built a lot of Conversion X, a lot right. of Conversion right. X, and I lost tracks of all of them. I don't even know the total number. As you know, building a banjo for me means building the neck, binding the resonator, right. putting the parts together, choosing... The right parts, doing finish work and everything. It's not actually building a resonator, <laughs> smelting brass for the tone rings.
1: Right. Not a, not everybody has that. No,
0: yeah. <laughs> the tooling.
1: But the neck and the fi- final finish and and all that.
0: Oh uh, yeah, sure. which yeah. is a lot of a lot of. Work. I mean, setting the right yeah. angle on the neck. That is very fine work. I mean the banger may have sounded great even if they hacked the the healer way with gouges but there's only one banger in the world and only one 9584-3 uh, Exactly.
1: So Hey why why is your company name scorpion? There there aren't a lot of scorpions in Italy, are there? Yeah. Or maybe there are.
0: Not as big are as there? in Mexico or in Texas. But, yeah, yeah there, there are a lot of scorpions. There used to be a lot of scorpions in my grandmother's house. Uh, I remember waking okay. up in the morning and there was a scorpion right here on the wall, just 20 <laughs> centimeters from my face. Watching you. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but it's also a, an astral thing. Uh, a friend okay. of mine who knew I was a Scorpio she made a drawing of a scorpion and i liked it so much so i used that very drawing for for the branding iron
1: oh okay so the one that we all see yeah. on our on our bridges here and it's oh, how perfect cool.
0: because it it goes down exactly the,
1: following the contours of the middle foot for the feet yeah very cool uh, so moving on let's let's talk about we've talked about your bridges of course let's talk about the rest of your instrument what are your what is your main banjo or banjos i mean you already told us a little bit about the uh the sem- sentimental yeah. one that you got there Hi. um is that the primary instrument that you use when you play and perform
0: yeah it's on a couple of of CDs i haven't had it for so long i mean it's just 12 or 13 years so okay it's been yeah a uh, very good banjo. Uh
1: and, t- there's also- and t- remind me what exactly that is. It was a TB seventy-five. Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah, late, late, very late thirties, but
0: uh, nobody had uh, has an idea of where the original neck was, and most of oh. those seventy-five had the um, the FON number stamped on the back of the peghead, so I have okay. no idea what this number may have been. The same for another 75 that I have, which is the first pre-war that I bought from Tom McKinney 30 years ago. It's a bona fide 75, which used to be tenor and arched up. I got it from Tom McKinney in 91. And it was not an incredibly good time. I mean, for a few years it was... A great banjo. Then I went downhill, family-wise and mental health-wise, and the sound of the banjo went downhill with me.
1: Oh, terribly. weird. <laughs> I mean, weird how that happens.
0: Yeah. So I sold it. I mean, I traded it. with Curtis McPeak. I got a TB1 that sounded pretty decent. And uh, 1930, no, 73 D35.
1: Which okay. dissolved itself <laughs> in a couple of years. Uh, those weren't the, those weren't the prime years, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Let's forget
0: about it. So uh, a- I, the good thing is that I I sold that ban- that banjo to Peck Peak, and the day after I had given it to him, that banjo left for Japan. But uh, eight years ago or nine years ago, Tom McKinney c- came to to hear us play in Brevard and he told me, uh, Silvio, maybe you're not interested, but in case you are, I know where Blondie is. Blondie was the name that he had given to that banjo. Okay. I I, I want to know it, so I got in touch yeah. with the Japanese guy and I bought it back for the same sum that I had originally given to Tom McKinney.
1: How and interesting! You have this funny, pa- you have such a funny pattern of <laughs> yeah. finding these instruments. They're like boomerangs for you. <laughs>
0: uh, well, I hope they are, because <laughs> in this case it was it was a win win situation for me and yeah. the Japanese guy. Also this banjo, this is pretty new. It's a Pullman's Granada, which is made, which I put together in the course of about 10 or 12 years. Some parts of pre-war like tension hoop, armrest, Presto, flange, rim, which came from yeah. a 1929 TB3 and was cut for a one piece flange. The resonator, which I think was a uh, style one that was reskinned, you can see that the sides are not curly maple. It's the straightest maple you could ever right. find. So maybe the sides were not reskinned and the, the back was. And I built a neck, and there's a Sullivan ring in it, which I asked Eric to uh, custom. Cut it for me. And I think it's a great banjo. Yeah, wonderful. And also, I have another one right there. This is one ugly banjo.
1: <laughs> yeah, the mother of toilet seat.
0: Yeah. RB, I mean, OTB oh, 11,
1: 11, yeah.
0: Black resonator. The, the neck is a Donny Bryant neck, which was finished in black, of course. It's got a TB1 rim, a pre-war flange. All the rest of the, of the um, metal is, is new, It's pruga. No, this is pre-war, and this is pre-war. And... And
4: it's,
0: and it's got a solid, I mean, no whole rank that, according to David Wadsworth, who is no liar, come on, he's uh-huh. in close touch with, with the good Lord, so he cannot lie. <laughs> everything's the truth, yeah. <laughs> and according, possibly, to Steve Huber, it's made of pre-war metal. I mean, it was... Uh, Made in the late 30s, and it was not cut according to Gibson specs. It was turned on the lathe in, in a different way than the Gibson's, the Gibson tone rings of the time. So, Do you have an explanation about that? No, possibly somebody at Gibson took the tone ring and turned it him, himself. Uh, with huh. different specs. So it was mm, adjusted, so to say. Turned again by, by Steve Huber. And wow. I've got my banger right here. Yeah. It's embarrassing how much volume it has.
1: Wow, yeah, that, <laughs> that's got a lot of power.
0: Yeah, my my neighbors don't like it so much. <laughs> but I love it. It's it's a stage banjo, definitely.
1: Oh yeah, I bet that cuts on a microphone oh, yeah. like nothing else. Well that's a that's a great collection. Talk about your other preferences. Are you are you sold on any particular picks or uh tail pieces? Uh, I assume you're, no, you're I, I, I assume you're only using uh Grover Bridges, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I like the idea. I, I made a lot of band, of bridges uh, trying to, uh, to make them as close as, as Grover's shape, only cut right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this is... Another. This is an... Uh, Arthur E. Smith, Northampton, with Resonator. Uh, it should be 1980, no, 78. Sorry. And this is really loud. It's great for stage use to play claw hammer. Yeah, sounds good. On a stage where the other banjo is that beast right there. I also have another uh, Arthur Smith open back in my girlfriend's house along with the other TV. 75.
1: I interrupted you after I asked you about picks and tail pieces and heads and strings and stuff. So go, go ahead with that. Okay, Sorry. picks.
0: Uh, I've tried everything and then some, and I've settled with ovalades mm-hmm. or some circle aids, the ones that don't have too much of a flat part, and uh, old nationals white or turkle shell. <laughs> yeah. they <laughs> say. They they have the sound that I like. But I also like the uh, American made banjo Kel Croydon thumb picks. Those are okay. really great. Um, they last forever. I've tried the blue chip. I lost the third thumb pick that I got from Melvin and uh, I, I don't like them I mean I yeah, love them they, they help you play fast they're incredible I played twice the speed that I can <laughs> that I can play with the, with the national but I don't like the fact that the, the blade is set back to uh, the, the, the base of, of my of my thumb So I keep on missing strings actually, with the blue chip. Right, my fault, not the designs. I also like the the Dean Hofmeier picks, the incredible, the most perfect reproduction of the old National finger picks that I could think of. They're great,
1: and Dean's. That's good to hear because that's what that's what I have. I haven't quite made the investment of some real old Nationals, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that they come close. And then what about, strings. what about the other stuff? The- strings. Yeah, strings. GHS.
0: I've been a GHS addict since 1980, maybe. First, yeah, first or second time I went to the Frankfurt trade show, I met Dave Holcomb, who at the time was the, uh, the H of GHS. He agreed after year after year, I kept pestering him about getting an endorsement from JHS. Yeah. So he eventually yielded. And we've been JHS endorsers for 40 years. And now yeah. I've, I've tried every possible set that they make but uh, I've settled on the uh, both the Crow sets stage or studio. I use studio on the mahogany banjos and the stage on the maple ones and on the black mean creature. Right. He wants a 10 on on first and fifth.
1: He can handle it, yeah.
0: And uh, I use mediums uh, for the claw banjos.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Capos.
0: Tom McKinney. He, He was a friend of mine. So I always got my capers from him, more often than not, in trade for bridges. I think they're great. Everybody who has done a McKinney-style bridge, starting from, I can't remember the name of Tom's helper, but all the way through a Showcase, Bill Stokes, yeah, uh, including Steve Huber. This, um, this caper is a Huber, oh, well, I can't take it out now. But it's a Huber McKinney style capo. And it's yeah. great. Really good.
1: Yeah, they're all really good.
0: Tuners. And I love the Bill Rickard Cyclone Tuners. Uh, true, but I'm also fine with the uh, Five Star Tuners. Uh, the uh, Krishat Tuners made in the Czech Republic. Go oh, okay. Tuners, of course. They're yeah, really great and accurate. Anything except the shallower.
1: Um another thing I really wanted to to hear about was if you have like microphone preferences or anything like that and specific I I found um the samples I was able to find online of your music. I thought there was some really great banjo tone, particularly what there was a track called, I have it written down, Dixieland for Me. Oh. I thought that's like a really great jd croak type of sound i, I thought it was, that was wonderful the, banjo tones. that so. was the
0: bow tie was it really yeah at the time when a, I, I think it sounds great and didn't, didn't even know where to start about setting up a banjo it was th- that I, thing and the microphone was a u47 uh, okay very old at the time u47 that's why it sounded so great
1: yeah, well, the I mean, the playing sounds good, and and it it came through. I thought it was great tone. Is that still what you prefer to use, if possible?
0: Well, I wish Are you I had that microphone. <laughs> 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 I've used that and the the eighty seven, mm-hmm. so I can agree with Sonny Osbourne about microphone choice. But I've also used a lot of other microphones with good results. Matter yeah. of fact, I've never been happy with the sign of my bench on records. Never. <laughs> Except really? okay. this last time on our latest release... <phone rings>
2: A few close calls, but I'm just doing fine. Running low with everything we brought up here. Like people I don't know and friends of mine. And, and you you're never, never, never out of my mind. And you know The
1: 1978 vintage one? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. vintage 1978. Carolina Carolina Red, Red.
0: which we recorded at the Kruger's studio. Oh, Jens Kruger used, uh, Uh, let me, he used this thing here. This is my lab from Sweden. And this model is the dc 96B Uh, I think Jens had a 196 It's the the perfect banjo microphone for me Jens told me that Bela is using this one more and more What do I know? I know that I place it in front of the banjo a little bit from the top pointing down I don't need to do anything. The, the yeah, sound that's man amazing. only needs to to add a, just a little compression to it, and it's perfect.
1: Yeah, I'll have to check those out. I'm not I'm not familiar, but I love learning new things about M I L
0: A B. Yeah, uh, very cool. They you can find some used for around one thousand okay. dollars, which is eighty eight hundred and fifty. Euros. But I've also used not in the studio. For live use, I use a KEL can't remember the motto. Doyle okay. and and Swifty told me to, to buy that because that was what they were using at the time. It's a great condenser mic that has amazing feedback
1: rejection. Here it is. Oh cool! Oh, Kel, yeah, yeah. Those, From Canada, are those I being think. made? Yeah, are those being made still? I thought this there was-
0: very model. I'm not sure, but maybe, maybe it is HM3C.
1: Yeah, it's I awesome. Know some of his went out of production. Yeah,
0: awesome medium diaphragm, not very large. It picks the lows and the mid, low mids, and, and everything. Really great, really great. And, and you can use it live. I can use it live, which is amazing.
1: Yeah, amazing. Because
0: I've used the uh, AKG-415, and it's hell for <laughs> <Yeah>. feedback. Great <laughs> sound of are, if you yeah. can hear it. But right. other, other Neumanns like this one that I'm using here, the 104, TLM-104, 104, it's hard to use live. Mm. This Kale is not.
1: Yeah, that's, that's good to know. Yeah.: Oh, the, other, the only other thing was, you know, so you said you were really happy with your banjo sound on that latest record. If, if you were to recommend one of your recordings for people to check out your playing, is that latest one probably the, yeah, the one that you would point them toward?: Probably yes.
0: Uh, cool. not so much for the sound of the band, but for the sound of the banjo, it is. It is.: Yeah, okay. I like it. And I, I loved the way Jens produced us. Uh, <laughs> sounds like I, I like being kicked in the ass because that's what, that's what he did time and again. He even well, he's... cut a final banjo break on, on one number because I couldn't get it right. And he was right and I was wrong. I was able to learn how to play it properly Months after that record had been released <laughs> so now when we do it that, that particular song live it ends with a banjo break but not on the record because
1: Jens chucked it <laughs> well he's he has so much knowledge that I would I would trust just about anything he says exactly I think, my thought such a good ear yeah he is the most musical human being on earth I guess He's in the running for sure.
3: Yeah.
1: So, how do people find out about the discs? Give us a website of how to find you and your bridges and maybe also red wine on the internet.
0: Well, I can give you my, my email, which is Silvia Ferretti, all together, no, no dots, no underscore, no nothing.
1: Two R's and two T's, two right? Two
0: R's and two T's, perfect. Yeah. At gmail.com.
1: Okay. So, so that's how they Anybody contact wants, you about...
3: Yeah.
0: want Bridges or Red Wine Records, they can contact me. And eventually they're going to get one or the other. <laughs> but <laughs> I have several dealers for, for my Bridges in the U.S. Your old boss.
1: Elderly Instruments. Yeah, just go. That's all you need to know. They'll have them. Yeah.
0: And Benjo Ben Clark. Mm-hmm. The Acoustic Shop. The Chapman's store in, in Missouri com, and if any European banjo player is listening now there's Eagle Music Eagle Music Store in the UK they carry bridges for anything special like Radio Stop or anything custom non-stock they have to, to ask me directly
1: Sounds good Well great Silvio, thanks for being so generous with your time and telling us all your stories and giving us all your giving all your secrets away about this bridge building—they're <laughs> <are> not
0: secrets <laughs> and stuff. But, I mean, all you need is just buy a, a book about <laughs> violent bridges, and you have everything in there, or maybe excellent weighing a bridge—the effect uh, of zero point zero one gram. More or less, and <laughs> that is not on books. But I, I didn't invent anything, and Snuffy didn't invent anything. He just applied certain rules to to the banjo, and that was it.
1: Well, whatever you're doing, you're you're always on the list. Anytime anyone talks about favorite banjo bridges, you're always one of the first to be mentioned. So, oh, thank you. You're you're doing something right, and yeah, congrats <laughs> and and. Thanks again for taking the time to talk to me.
0: Thank you for uh, having me on your, on your podcast, which is always great. I mean, I really appreciate being here and be able to talk about, about a wasted life <laughs> in search of the perfect no. banjo sound or something, while at the same time doing a million of other things.
1: Not wasted at all. So hope to be able to run into you in person next yeah. time. Yeah. Please.
0: It was too much fun when we met at IBMA or uh, other trade shows. I uh, really loved it.
1: And there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Silvio Ferretti of the bluegrass band Red Wine and of Scorpion Bridge fame. You heard a bunch of tracks on this episode in order. They were Cabin on a Lonely Hill by Red Wine. Ida Red by The New Christy Minstrels, Talking Union by Pete Seeger, Bear Tracks by J.D. Crow, and then three Red Wine tracks, Mamma Mia Medley, Dixieland For Me, and Henry Hill. Special thanks to Panos Koutalos, today's Patreon supporter of the show. Go to patreon.com slash Podcast to find out how you can support the show when there's still time to sign up before next week's uh, meetup the VIP lounge and once again that is June 29th at 9 p.m eastern and I hope to see you all there contact the show Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast at gmail.com that's gonna do it for me everyone take care and I'll see you all next time